0: Welcome to the MCC Brussels podcast. I am Jacob Reynolds, Head of Policy here at MCC Brussels, the think tank which aims to shake up the Brussels bubble and kickstart a genuine discussion on the future of Europe. Welcome especially to this, the first episode of the podcast. Over the coming months, we'll be bringing you opinion and insight on some of the major events defining Europe, as well as highlights from our events and interviews with experts and authors. Today we're looking at the aftermath of the riots which shook France over the past weeks. Many in Brussels seemed determined to ignore the riots, not just because they were dismissed as a uniquely French affair, but because they raise uncomfortable questions about identity, integration and multiculturalism. To dig into what was really driving this incredible outburst of violence and disorder, I sat down with MCC Brussels Executive Director Frank Frady and also with Philippe Lemoine, Philippe is a PhD candidate in philosophy at Cornell and a research fellow at the Centre for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. But more than this, he's one of Substack or Twitter's most insightful commentators on issues from the pandemic to the war in Ukraine. You can find him at philippem or on Twitter at phl43. If you enjoy this conversation, please subscribe so you don't miss a future episode and follow us on Twitter at mcc. Brussels. I began the conversation by asking Philippe to put the riots into context. Okay, so Philippe, it'd be useful, I think, to kick off if you could just give us a sense of kind of the scale of what happened over the past few weeks and usefully, I mean, how it compares to other kind of similar incidences in past or, or recent years.
1: I guess one way to get a sense of the scale is to look at uh, how much money uh, insurance companies say that uh, it's going to cost them. So if you want to compare this to the, so there were riots, uh, in 2005 in France, which were similar in many ways, although there were differences. It lasted longer in 2005. But it was also more less intense. So insurance companies at the time, after it was all said and done, I think said that it cost them about 200 million do- uh, euros, you know, to reimburse businesses and what we call local collectivities, you know, cities who are responsible for the schools, etc. So I don't know what it would be adjusted for inflation. It would be probably to like over 300 million euros in two days euros. But just yesterday, the insurance company said that so far they were estimating that based on the claims they had received so far, it would cost them uh, what was it? Uh, over uh, over 500 uh, uh, million euros this time, even though it was much shorter. But this is only a few days after it was done. So by the time they get all the claims, etc., uh, it will be probably two or three times more expensive than in 2005, even accounting for inflation. So for another comparison, you could look at the cost of the yellow vest movement, which went over several months. And this also cost about 200 million euros. So this will be at least three times as much but it was only five days about five days it was shorter than both the yellow vest movement and the 2005 riots but it was much more intense and it was quite unprecedented in terms of intensity i don't think we've ever had anything like this before
0: yeah and i, I think people will have noted the scale and the indiscriminate nature of, of what went on and how kind of explosive uh in very literal terms uh, things were you noted in 2005 there was a more pronounced religious element uh whereas this time, obviously, I mean, you don't need to be a kind of expert in sociology to recognize that this is concentrated or was concentrated amongst sort of a certain areas and socioeconomic groups. Of course, the traditional response from people on the left is that this is about kind of deprivation or poverty. Uh, there have been articles talking about the rising cost of food and, and such like. Um, I guess to get to the number of the issue, Philippe, what, what do you think is really driving what's going on?
1: I think a lot of it is down to chance or you know bad luck in this case like i'm not even saying that stuff like inflation could not have like added fuel to the fire but i don't think it's the main thing i think the basic story is that there was a police shooting that was filmed i think that was a crucial thing and the video looks Pretty bad for the police. I mean, it looked very bad actually. And so this just like kicked off riots, you know, at first because people were angered by the, the, the police shooting and what the video showed. And then, you know, you have a process of social mimicry where I don't think at this point it's, you know, people don't have a political conscious. I mean, I I hear like commentators talk about. The rioters, as if they had a political consciousness, but they're like, you know, they're not the the foreguard of the proletariat. It's it's very automatic. You know, young men in general, regardless of their origin, are pretty stupid. They're prone to antisocial behavior much more than the, the rest of the population. And you have people who go in the streets and it's kind of like the purge, you know, they can they feel like they can do anything. But what made this possible in the first place is that you have large concentrations of populations that are, to a large extent, you know, disconnected from the rest of the population. I don't mean disconnected physically, although in some cases that is true. But for instance, in Nanterre, which is the place where this started, this is very well connected to Paris. Uh, So, you know, I think we have, due to decades of immigration, we have large concentrations of populations that uh, very often don't feel French- even though most of them are technically French, you know, they have French citizenship. And you have high concentration of people in those places who engage in antisocial behavior of any kind, of, of many kinds, uh, at, at rates much higher than the rest of the population. So I'm not talking about crime, although that's one of the main thing, but also letting trash in the streets, uh, making noise in public transport and sort of like basic stuff, part of like the unspoken rules of a normal society. And of course it's not all of the people in those areas, you know, obviously, but the proportion of the population over there that engage in this sort of behavior is higher, significantly higher than, we have data on this. We have data on incarceration. Restoration rates, etc. Uh, we have data on how well they do at school, and you see those problems. I don't think to answer your question. Again, I'm not saying that stuff like poverty and inflation played no role. But I, I don't think that it's plausible that it's the main explanation. I mean, we've had in the past, you know, immigrants in the past who came from different places, but they lived in abject poverty. Much It was much worse than what it is now. Uh, we had actual slums in France until the 60s or 70s. In fact, those buildings where current immigrants often live in the suburbs of uh, big French cities, especially around cities. I think that what people don't understand like the process by which those places became worse in terms of crime, state of the infrastructure, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, is largely endogenous. It's because gradually we've had more and more uneducated North African and African immigrants who have gone there to live, That and because those populations, as I said before, have a higher rate of uh, antisocial behavior, that those places went into that the sort of condition there today. And so
0: it's yeah. not because we haven't put money in there. We've, we've, okay. we've poured a lot of money. In there. We'll come back to that process in a second. But Frank, I, I mean, Philippe then just kind of raised this question of the the question of who feels French and what what does it mean to feel French and to an outside observer I think that sense of the the scale of destruction indicates at some level that you don't feel that you have a purchase in where you live because why else would you want to subject it to so much violence and destruction What, what, what do you make of this question of who feels French what, what, it, Does that play a role in what's what's gone on Do you think
2: Yeah I mean I think it does and I think that it doesn't really matter what started it. Because anything could have started because uh, what you've got there is a, a disposition towards an intense level of polarization uh, which is something that you feel whenever you go to Paris particularly and I know when I was in Paris a couple of months ago I really noticed how certainly in my lifetime things have changed quite a bit at the first time I went to Nanterre was in 1969, when you still had the bit, bit left of the university protest and the kind of the radicalization that occurred at that time. When I went to Nanterre, about five years ago, it just felt like a different country. It was barely kind of recognizable. And I think that's one of the things that you notice. And in that sense, France isn't all that different to a large parts of Europe. You have a a situation where despite the the rhetoric of liberté, égalité, fraternité, the French society has not been able to create a sense of Frenchness. Uh, French society finds it very difficult to answer the question of what it means to be French. And in that sense, it's not all that different. Then in Brussels, where I'm spending a lot of time at the moment in Belgium. And it's not even that different than Britain, which, Jacob, you know quite well, and many other parts of Europe, where you have a situation where assimilation has become a dirty word. And as a result of that, what you've got is a kind of polarized environment where there is no common bond between different sections of society, despite all the rhetoric. And uh, the failure of multiculturalism, I think, is really kind of quite fundamental. I think that's the key, uh, for me, that's the key issue here. Now, this then leads to a number of other situations where basically, if you have parallel world, uh, or several worlds running in parallel with each other, then you naturally misinterpret each other's, other's motives. And all the sociological literature that I have read shows you that whenever uh, something happens, members, different mem- members of different communities will react to the same phenomenon In quite different ways and that's what we've seen in in the French kind of situation and I don't think any of this has got anything to do with inequality, which is. uh, I mean, I think Philip is right in this respect, which is promoted as as the reason for it, Uh, they basically say that there's two factors, the racism of the French police and the inequality. Uh, of economic of economic life for for two reasons. One, the amount of money that the French government has put into uh, these neighborhoods, these banlieues, and elsewhere since the last set of riots has been quite considerable. So they've putting a lot of money in there. As it happens, the money has just been completely wasted into these kind of communities. It's also the case that a lot of people that live in Nanterre and other uh, areas have jobs. You know, they do work. You know, sort of in Paris itself. But not only that. The labour market in France at the moment, in Paris at the moment, is actually quite good. So there doesn't need to be you know, high levels of unemployment uh, at the moment. So from an economic point of view, the situation isn't one that is uh, as, as bad as it's made out to be. Can I just say something about racism? I think that uh, the whole idea of uh, racism, uh, the police racism as being a factor or French racism is also misplaced. Because, yes, I mean, the, you know, there is racism in French society. And the French police are not, not exactly social workers in the way that they behave. But racism against minorities in France is actually weaker than it used to be. I mean, it's a, it runs along the same line as in Belgium or in Britain and elsewhere. So there's far less racism now than would have been the case uh, 15 or 20 years ago. And, uh, and I think, therefore, you know, what we see is a situation where everything gets blamed other than the real cause, which is that multiculturalism <clears throat> doesn't work can I just make one last point, which is looking at the statistics, the average age of all the people that got arrested in Paris is 17. So what that tells me is that there's also a family breakdown, loss of parental authority, all the usual kind of elements that you will find in, in in ghettos throughout the world from the United States to Europe.
0: Yeah, I mean, there were some videos of uh, some parents kind of dragging their, their, their children off the streets, which were kind of the things you wanted to to, to see a bit. I mean, Philippe, but reactions to some of that and maybe in particular this question of the, the parallel societies. There was this uh, rather amusing article that The Guardian ran who were suddenly now complaining that the police weren't prepared to go into certain uh, areas in in the in the French suburbs, of course, after telling us for many years that the idea of no-go zones is a, a complete myth. But so do you have any reactions to this uh, this sense that there's kind of parallel societies forming, not just as Frank notes, not just in France, but this is a European phenomenon as well. I find it
1: interesting to contrast the current situation with previous
0: waves of immigration.
1: The idea that racism, as Frank was saying, is is higher now than it was before. I mean, you know, it's ludicrous. We had in the late 19th century, early 20th century, we had actual pogroms in France against uh, Italian immigrants. You, you don't have pogroms against, uh, you know, North African or African uh, immigrants right now. If you want to think about the cause, like, and why you have those parallel societies, I mean, there, there are various reasons. Uh, first of all, again, I, as I said before, you have very high level of crime, because those those populations of crime rather are many times higher than the rest of the population, or for that matter, than uh, other uh, immigrant groups, such as Asian immigrants including uneducated Asian immigrants. They have very low crime rates, and yet they are subjected usually to the same material living conditions. I think one factor that actually is important compared to previous wave of immigration, which were predominantly European, is that you have higher barrier uh, intermarriage, in particular religion. And in terms, you know, if you have no intermarriage, uh, it's going to contribute greatly to this phenomenon of parallel societies forming within the larger French society, because that's one of the main ways in which historically immigrant groups integrate into the larger society by intermarrying with pe- members of the majority population. And this happens a lot less today. So on average, for instance, immigrants, or actually the the children of North African immigrants, marry uh, with members of the majority population at about bit sometime, somewhere between 30 and 35 percent, depending on the year. For uh, children of African immigrants, you know, uh, sub-Saharan African immigrants, it's between 40 and 45 percent. So that's the average rate, but when you look at closer data, which, for instance, a uh, French uh, demographer called Michel tribalaz has, has looked at this with access to data, that, data on religion, you see that religion is a major. So the, the main reason why Sub-Saharan African immigrants and their children marry with members of the pop, majority population more often is because they're less often Muslim. We, we have a lot of Muslims, you know, in Sub-Saharan among Sub-Saharan Africans. In, in fact, at this point, it's probably the majority, but it's obviously less than for uh, North Africans, where almost all of them are moving. And if you look at the data, you see that religion acts as a barrier, a huge barrier for marriage. If you look at, you know, North African immigrants who are educated and not religious, they tend to marry with uh, members of the majority population and their kids tend to do well. And in three generations, you know, those kids would be, you know, their descendants will be indistinguishable from the rest of society. When you have this, you don't have this sort of like parallel society that's formed. And, you know, like I said, the high crime and... More generally, high rates of antisocial behavior is another, because, uh, you know, people don't want to live in areas where you have high crime rates, and uh, in general, like, antisocial behavior is widespread. So if you look at the data, again, there's a paper, and the mechanism doesn't seem to be so much white light, so it's not so much that Europeans in those areas leave, although it happens, but mostly it's not so much that, because they don't have the means to go elsewhere, at least not if they want to Keep a job which is going to have to be in the same area uh so rather the mechanism is that as um uh, people from you know europeans in those areas move because they retire or they move from to an, an another region entirely or whatever uh they are not replaced by other europeans because new other europeans don't don't already live there don't want to move there for obvious reasons and so by this process uh you have um you have higher and higher concentration of those population in those areas, and this makes the problem of intermarriage worse.
2: Well, I just think uh, Philip uh, overemphasizes marriage as a kind of uh, a, a cohesive force that overcomes some of these divisions, because you have uh, a lot of communities with very high rates of um, endogamy, uh, for example, Hindu, Melia, uh, sort of Asian groups married within their own communities. And that doesn't in any sense uh, lead to the kind of polarized landscape that we're seeing at the moment. Um, I think there are a number of factors that are really quite important. One of them uh, is that it's not just the Europeans who are leaving the banlieues, but the more successful section of the immigrant population, as soon as they do quite well, they're the first ones to get out out of there. And what's happening, and this is the same phenomenon in America, is they're leaving the less successful uh, mm. sort of people behind, uh, which I think is quite important. But the point I would want to emphasize, but what I think is really quite important, is that at the moment we're talking about uh, the failure of of of, of the immigrant sections and the, and the kind of the uh, in many respects the uh, isolated, fragmented kind of ghetto families uh, as being a problem. I think it's the other problem, which has got to do with the majority society, which is that uh, within France itself, within French society, the, the, the pull, the attractiveness of what it means to be French has become weaker. And that's because the majority of French society itself no longer believes in what it means to be French. No longer, There's no longer that sense of national purpose that France used to have, which could act as an attraction, as a magnet, uh, towards the rest of uh, of, uh, of of society and I think that's really where we gotta look because one of the things that I've noticed is that very often certainly uh if I sociological eyes you almost get the impression that the French French youth are more influenced or at least a section of them are more influenced by the culture of the of this kind of ghettoized immigrant population than the other way around and, and you have, I, I think somebody, a guy called Jerome Forget, who kind of coined this phrase of de uh, Actually, actually has got a point there in that you do have a, a kind of uh, civilizational decadence that has kicked in, which if I had time, I would love to explore in a bit more detail.
0: So, for the one element that did come out of this, and some people have begun to write about this and dissect this, is the kind of counter response, as it were, to the riots. And obviously, the first thing that lots of people might uh, get concerned about when they see this is their first instinct is, oh, well, what is this going to mean for the far right? Obviously, we've seen some mobilizations uh, in uh, France of various far right groups. Do you think this is a, a factor, a growing factor? Do you think this gives sucker to the far right? How do you interpret this? Uh, I mean, if the
1: question is who will benefit politically from this, then, then unquestionably it's going to be the right, in particular, the Penner Party, right-wing parties in general, but of course it's the main one right now, uh, are going to benefit from this. I mean, the the right in general always benefits from disorder. And French society, you know, the majority population has been pretty host- hostile to immigration for a while already. And this will just further confirm this hostility and, and of course the part, the main party that's associated with like, uh, opposition to immigration is the, the national rally, the party of Le Pen. Uh, on the other hand, I don't want to exaggerate the political impact it will have. I think in practice, it will be very limited for the simple reason that we don't have a national election, uh, unless you call the European election next year, we don't have a national election for many years. And people will move on. People will mostly forget about this stuff. I think it will just uh, continue to fuel the uh, already very high anti-immigration sentiment in France. But this is mostly background, like I, I wouldn't say that this will have this particular episode will have an easily identifiable effect on french politics so uh, you, but,
0: but- you you are noticed and uh, others have been sharing on twitter the results of uh, what what seemed to be some fairly striking polling with regards to french attitudes to immigration which i mean obviously you'd expect them to be slightly uh, maybe exaggerated versions of themselves right now but the but the the general as you say that the background noise of French politics has been this kind of smoldering...
1: I actually think that polling underestimates the extent of anti-immigration sentiment, because we have a lot of evidence that there is significant social desirability bias with uh, polling on immigration in Europe. On the other hand, as you mentioned, uh, this those polls that we see right now, they're being made right after the event, so people are still like kind of shocked by what happened. And so this
0: will pull things in the other direction. To so look ahead just a little bit, I mean, one might characterize the, la- the recent cycles of... French elections as this kind of simmering uh, resentment with, with a mm. broad range of issues, not just related to immigration, but a large number of kind of populist style uh, issues, which motivates it from the yellow vest right through to immigration. But and Then at the last minute, the establishment, as it were, kind of closing ranks and managing to get someone resembling an establishment figure into the presidency and the challenger kind of eventually being kicked out. How long do you think this dynamic in French politics can last, given the kind of simmering uh, populist style that we see?
1: Honestly, I think longer than people would think. And here's the reason. People have this model of electoral politics where voters decide who to vote for so as to maximize the satisfaction of their ideological preferences. That's how we justify normatively democracy, that it allows people to choose how they want to be governed and what that means concretely, is that they will vote so as to, to maximize the satisfaction of their ideological preferences. But I think it's a very bad model of electoral politics. That's not how people vote at all. That's not to say that uh, ideology has no effect on uh, people's electoral behavior, who they vote for, but it's much more limited than people realize because there are are many interfering factors. So, you know, one thing, one anecdote I often tell is, is something that happens very often in France. We'll talk to an old person, talk to them in particular about immigration. They, they will often say things that are much more extreme than Le Pen is saying. And I can tell you much more extreme than even what she would say in private, much more modern than what the average French retiree will say about immigration. But then you're like, OK, so you're going to vote for Le Pen. And they're genuinely horrified. That would, you wouldn't make such a suggestion because they identify as moderate. And Le Pen, of course, is a fascist. That's how she's depicted in the media. And so they won't vote, you know, they won't vote for a fascist because they're not fascist. That's, you know, that's how they see things in there. So even though Le Pen, on many issues they really care about a lot, will uh, better satisfy their, uh, better correspond to their ideological preferences to the extent that they have any, they will not vote for her for this kind of consideration, and so that's why I think this, uh, what you're describing, it, it could actually last for longer than people think. Now, despite this simmering uh, populist anger in the country, which I agree has been going on for a while now, and is particularly pronounced on the issue of immigration, but not just that, like the yellow vest movement, that nothing to do with immigration was quite powerful and much more threatening politically, by the way, than those riots for the for the government because.
0: Because they had riot. political content, they had ob- objective political content.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think this has also been overestimated. I think the political content came afterwards, but I don't think there was much of it initially, but rather because it's not the same people who are rioting. When, when it's people from the immigrants or, you know, descendants of immigrants from the suburbs who are rioting, it's kind of business as usual. I mean, not that we have this yeah. riot on this scale very often, but, you know, as I said, uh, we have smaller scale riots that happen fairly regularly. And you know, and they, they attract no sympathy from the general population. The the yellow vest was, was what was politically dangerous for the government is that you have people in the middle of nowhere. In, even in rural areas, burning uh, public buildings down. And when on this occasion, the government was really frightened because also, those guys had the sympathy of the general population. There was like over 75% support for the movement, even after they started burning things down. So this was very worrisome. This is very different. But anyway, coming back to the original question, so you have, yeah, you have this populist anger, and, uh, and of course it means that little by little, even Le Pen uh, is uh, gaining ground, you know, in, in both polls and election, you know, she did much better last time in the second round that she did in 2017. But if it's, if she's the candidate in 2027, I would bet that she will lose again for the kind of reasons I was saying it. Now, there is another possibility. It's that she doesn't run in 2027 and she lets the young current president of her party called Jordan Bardella, who is, first of all, it, it will seem dumb, but trust me, it's important. His name is not Le Pen. Yeah. And you have to understand the name Le Pen has been demonized for several decades in France. It's toxic. It's absolutely toxic. And that alone will harm you and will hurt you in elections. So as this guy runs, depending on the conditions, you know, right now, as Frank was saying, uh, the economy is doing fairly well in, in France. So it, it will depend on, but like depending on... What state the economy is in in 2027? If it's not Le Pen on the ballot, then, you know, it may happen. If it's Le Pen, honestly, I think it's very unlikely. I think the the phenomenon you describe, where the establishment is closing rank, it won't be Macron's time, but probably will be Édouard
0: Philippe, the former prime minister. Uh, I think silly wins. I think the the problems you identify with some of the kind of normal perceptions of our politics work are certainly correct. And uh, notwithstanding that, uh, we'd want to note that this kind of populist Anger in the sense that people being very disconnected from the elites that govern them, that dynamic can't kind of continue indefinitely. And uh, 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 the populist anger and that kind of sense of reaction will, I think, uh, find a form Mm. of of some description. And the the question for us, I think, remains to be what form uh, will that take? But... Philippe, it's been the real pleasure to have you on. I hope we'll see you in Brussels at some point in the in the near future. And uh, thanks for joining our kind of first podcast. It's a little bit of an experiment for us, and hope it was uh, enjoyable for you as it was for us.
1: Yeah, that was great. Thanks for having me.
0: thanks for joining us on the mcc brussels podcast you can find more of philippe over on his Substack, which is philippe and a new course you can find more from us over on our twitter page mcc underscore brussels and our website we'll be back very soon with more news interviews and reaction to the big events shaping europe